Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I'm outraged by the irresponsibility and arrogance of the power companies in this state. It's only fair that every vote cast gets counted as much as possible. I wanted to drop it off in person to ensure that it was here and counted. This is the Connecticut Public Radio Storm Center. The following are canceled. The wheelhouse. Excuse me? And that little girl was me. All right. Welcome to the wheelhouse. You just heard Bridgeport Mayor Joe Gannam, Secretary of State and Denise Merrill, a voter using an absentee ballot box in West Hartford. Uh, the pre- uh, some random guy making an announcement. I don't know who that was. And then uh, California Senator Kamala Harris or Maya Rudolph impersonating uh, Kamala Harris. I don't know which one. We're back after being postponed by the storm last week. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio, and I'm Colin McEnroe. Lucy is off this week. The votes have been counted and tabulated. I think that those are the same thing anyway. And uh, it is we can now announce that Rocky De La Fuente will be the 46th president of the United States. Meanwhile, on the panel today, Brian Lockhart covers Bridgeport politics. He's also familiar with American democracy as it's practiced in the rest of America. So uh, but anyway, he does this uh, at uh, Hearst, Connecticut. Uh, Mark Pasniok is Capitol Bureau chief at the Connecticut Mirror. Uh, Mercy Quay, columnist for Hearst, Connecticut, adjunct faculty at Southern Connecticut State University and founding principal consultant of the Narrative Project. I had to take a breath because Mercy's got so much going on in there. I just can't get through it uh, on one lungful. So, yes, uh, Kamala Harris uh, obligingly. Uh, became the vice presidential nominee on Tuesday, uh, allowing us to quickly talk about this before we plunge into state affairs. Although it's probably worth noting that all of Connecticut's deeply conventional uh, Democratic uh, leaders uh, are very excited about Kamala Harris. So, Mercy, maybe get us going uh, on this pick. Um, uh, I'll take any particular insight you want to share, whether it's one of surprise or non-surprise or contentment. I mean, yeah. how does this how does this rest with you? I, I mean, I guess this was a, a pick that was expected. I think, you know, particularly from the black community, um, black women um, specifically felt strongly that Biden's path to victory had to be, uh, you know, accompanied or ushered in uh, while being handheld by a black woman. And so um, the only problem is we didn't expect it to be Kamala, right? Mm-hmm. I think that. We were hoping for someone a bit more uh, progressive, but I think Kamala, Kamala, oh wow, Kamala, <laughs> Kamala is a, a safe pick that we're seeing um, people around the state and country are are saying, yeah, actually, I can get behind this. I think that with you know Black Lives Matter happening and um, um, you know questions around police accountability, being able to say, well, I pick someone who was on the good side of, you know, the judicial system, right? Someone that I think even, you know, cop supporters would be able to get themselves behind at some point was a safe pick for Biden. It just wasn't the progressive choice that we were hoping for. Right. Although, Brian, one thing that we can say is that, you know, one person's not a sufficient progressive choice is 
somebody else's radical leftist, and uh, certainly re- the Republican Party has already begun to define this ticket of Biden and Kamala Harris, which screams centrism to me uh, as the just the the epitome of the radical left from which which we must be protected. Uh, it'll just be interesting to see kind of how that plays out. And I, I also, just to throw another one at you, Brian. I'm kind of. I am personally looking forward for to a Kamala Harris Mike Pence debate. I think that could be fun. I <laughs> know. I actually. I. I think that would be quite a debate. Um. And you're right. That line of attack is certainly expected of this choice. I was reading. Um. I was reading a columnist last night who their conclusion was that this was a choice of a candidate who thinks he's going to win. Mm-hmm. So Biden at this point is just trying to do whatever he can not to screw anything up, not to give Trump um, more ammunition to make an issue, um, not to not to create, you know, quote unquote, a Hillary's emails issue. Um, and so that was another reason why he went with this particular choice, um, because it didn't surprise necessarily a lot of people. As you said, it's kind of a centrist um, centrist choice. And it was just, this is, this is a decision that Trump, I mean, I'm sorry that Biden made because he thinks he's got this thing as long as he doesn't screw it up between now and November. Right. So Paz, we have to open the hood and poke around and, uh, say the name of Chris Dodd here a little bit. Uh, I'll let you remind the listeners of what Dodd's role in all this was and how this does seem to be, uh, a case of somebody else's sentiments prevailing. Yeah, I'm telling you, this whole process felt a little bit like a reality show where they injected some false drama just to keep the interest high. And, and what I'm referring to is the the, the flap over Chris Dodd's uh, comments. Uh, Chris Dodd, um, the former senator from Connecticut, uh, was leading the vetting process for vice president. He's one of Joe Biden's uh, oldest friends in the Senate, uh, emphasis on oldest. Uh, He's 76. And, you know, he made a remark, supposedly. It was uh, uh, reported based on a blind source that uh, Harris was insufficiently contrite on the question of her confrontation with Joe Biden during a presidential debate. In fact, you know, I think a lot of people thought it was the high point of her campaign. And uh, it certainly showed the talent that uh, people expect she'll bring to the debating stage with Mike Pence. Um, but yeah, that so that became a social media sensation for a day or two. You know, how dare this old white man suggest that this uh, ambitious woman was not sufficiently contrite for being an aggressive politician? Would that have been said about a male candidate? And at the end of the day, I, I mean, I took Dodd's remarks to really reflect what they were looking for, which was chemistry. But, you know, we ended up where everybody said um, Biden was in the beginning, which was he was uh, looking at Harris. She was the front runner uh, in the sweepstakes for vice president because she, you know, she went through the crucible of running for president. And people want to see a relatively safe pick right now. Um, You know, there was all the speculation about Karen Bass 
um, the leader of the Congressional Black Caucus, a former uh, assembly speaker in California. But, you know, there was a fear that, you know, somewhere out there, there was a photograph of her with a machete cutting sugar cane for Fidel Castro on a visit to Cuba, which would probably kill the Democrats' chances of taking Florida. And Florida is very much in the mix right now. So, you know, like, like I said, it really did feel a little bit like a reality show in that sense. Yeah, I, I would just I would add that. I would even go further you know, than a reality me. show. I would actually say this, I mean, you said sweepstakes. I would say this was a pageant, right? This sort of harkened back to the, you know, the days of binders of women. We knew it was going to be a, a woman. It was sort of like, you know, which of these women are least problematic and who is going to, you know, get the millennials out, but not scare away, um, you know, the, the older generation of voters who we know are reliable voters. Um, and so it did feel sort of beauty pageant. What's, you know, what's the one thing that you want to accomplish this year? Well, is your version of world peace any better than any of the other versions of world peace? Okay, great. Then we'll, we'll put you on the, on the ticket. We can split we the difference and say it was The Bachelor, basically. Um, <laughs> the um, I, One thing I will say about this is that, you know, these, these running made picks, and as far as I can tell my entire life, they rarely mean much of anything. Uh, and they are often talked about in all of the ways that they are less important. The most important thing a, a running mate has to be able to do is become president if that's necessary. And I think in the case of John McCain, not only was Sarah Palin, you know, obviously a very unconventional and kind of weird uh, gaff pro pick, but McCain was older and had significant health problems. Uh, and so there was a strong possibility that, that Palin could wind up being president. Uh, and, and I think that's the case with Biden. Biden is an unusually old uh, nominee. So it does sort of matter if the person he picks could run the country if he became incapacitated or, God forbid, died in office. Uh, and, you know, I mean, Harris obviously has significant experience in government. She's not, you know, she's not going to be baffled by this stuff. And that may be important this time. Hey, I wanted to spin around and just talk about uh, the primaries yesterday. Uh, and so, Brian, I'll start with you because uh, Bridgeport, being the cradle of democracy, takes this whole idea of primaries very, very seriously. I mean, you guys have a lot of primaries down there. Yeah, yeah. And and usually, you know, being it's dominated by Democrats, typically, typically the primaries are the real races and whoever wins is going to cruise to a victory in November. Um, so it was a late night for some of the candidates, but it does appear this morning that um, the incumbents won. So we had an early night last night for State Rep. Charlie Stallworth. Um, he had a victory in his primary. Um, as of this morning, Antonio Felipe, who's a very young state rep, 24 years old, um, it appears he has won his race. And um, I, ha I don't have anything official, but um, folks close to Marilyn Moore believe that she is okay. Uh, State Senator Marilyn Moore is okay. Former challenger to, to uh, uh, the actual mayor. mayor Joe Gano, last so, year. Yep. so Paz, before, I mean, we can sort of fly spec a few of these results, but it seems to me the biggest question about uh, yesterday wasn't necessarily who won, unless you were one of the people in contention, but how did it go? How, how did this fusion uh, of, um, uh, of normal voting, en enhanced absentee ballot uh, voting by mail, and also people taking their absentee ballots and running towards the box next to the town hall to dump them in there? Um, like, how did that go? And, and I guess 
we probably don't really know the answer to that question yet, right? Whether this was, could be called a successful day of voting. Yeah, I, you know, this was a historic election on several counts. Uh, this is the first time every voter could use an absentee ballot. Connecticut has very restrict, restrictive rules, but because of COVID, everybody could vote by absentee. Um, this was also the first time that uh, absentee ballots would be counted after, uh, if they arrived after uh, election day, if they were postmarked by election day, and if they arrive in the mail by Thursday, they will be counted. So in some of the close races, uh, you know, and, and Antonio Felipe may be in this uh, category. I don't, I don't know. It looked, it looked close. And if there were late absentee ballots arriving by mail, maybe that could tilt that. Um, but, uh, it's, yeah, we have not done this before. The, uh, early reviews I'd say were that we seemed to get through it without any major problems. Um, and, but the question in November will be, you know, how long will it take to get results? Um, voting by absentee, it's a very uh, labor intensive process for, counting them. Not that the counting itself takes long. You just feed it into the machines the same way you do when you vote in person. But opening each absentee ballot and validating it, and, and there's a registration process to make sure that um, somebody doesn't also show up at the polls and, and vote twice. And that's what takes the time. Um, so we'll see if, if uh, you know, this was a dry run, a limited number of, of races. There were, you know, 14 state legislative primaries, a couple of uh, congressional primaries on the Republican side. Um, you know, so far, so good. Well, some, something I heard a lot of in Bridgeport, and maybe, again, this is a Bridgeport thing, but candidates and even some voters were complaining over the last few days about ABs that never showed up. So mm -hmm. they either had supporters or they themselves applied for an absentee ballot and it never showed up. And so now they had to get these folks to the polls yesterday or show up at the polls yesterday. And I called the secretary of the state's office um, yesterday afternoon and they claimed that they were not aware of some big Bridgeport issue. Um, but I am, I am curious if that was a trend statewide or if it's, I mean, obviously we had Isaiah last week, there are reported problems with slow mail um, with the US Postal Service. We had some issues with this Rhode Island firm that the state contracted out to deal with the bulk of these ABs. So maybe, maybe that's part of it, I don't know. But has anyone else heard that? Well, before we answer that question, let's hear the Secretary of State uh, herself uh, on some of these questions. They turned out to be a, a real savior in this situation. So, you know, I think that's going to be with us for a while. Uh, people liked them a lot. Probably 98% of people actually got their ballots, just not in time to mail them, which probably explains the ballot box situation. I would say 98% of the people getting the ballots, just not in time to mail them. <laughs> that has a hollow ring to it to me somehow. That's sort of yeah. not the not. So, Mercy, I don't know how much of a sense you got. I mean, I, we have kind of a nice geographic dispersal here today with Brian from Bridgeport. You're uh, in New Haven and Paz is up here in Hartford. Um, did you get any sense yesterday? I mean, certainly the New Haven Independent was pointing out that most of the time there were more 
pull workers in any given gymnasium than people seeking the opportunity to cast a vote. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, you know, even in my polling place, yeah, walking in, I did, I did not cast an, uh, an absentee ballot. Um, so even in my polling place, it was, it was pretty empty, but you know, that's what you, that is what this measure was supposed to uh, create for us. I think some of the things that I'd be interested in uh, learning about is, you know, I mentioned via the email chain, wanting to figure out what's going on in Wallingford, right? Uh, the, after the back and forth battle between um, Denise Merrill's office and the mayor and the, you know, absentee ballots, you know, whether he was going to support absentee ballots and what the exact placement of them um, should be in order to minimize confusion with voters. You know, I am interested in seeing where are the other places in Connecticut where, you know, even if on a quieter scale, the, the ballots were inside um, the, the building as opposed to outside the building? And what are the other sorts of, um, you know, accessibility concerns that people were seeing around the state? Because Wallingford, uh, uh, you know, this was a showdown that lasted a few weeks prior to primary day. Paz, it was my recollection also this was debated uh, during the special session uh, when the enabling legislation uh, came out. Uh, and I believe some of the Republicans uh, in the General Assembly were sort of saying, oh, well, they, these could be vandalized or something. Yes. Uh, and there was in Vernon, there was a delay in putting one outside because they had their own system where there was a, you know, like a bank draw, a drawer that, that people could, that was manned by somebody. You didn't have to go into town hall. Yeah. I mean, most of these were placed outside town halls uh, where there were security cameras. People who are really concerned about their ballot being destroyed by vandalism certainly had the option to go on election day and just drop them in the slot. Um, these things were monitored during the day on election day. They were emptied several times a, a day. Um, so that was pretty safe if you were really concerned. And, and there have been no reports that I'm aware of of any of these uh, drop ballot drop boxes being vandalized. Um, so, you know, to what extent was that a serious concern. Um, it seems that other states do this all the time without problem and without uh, controversy. Paz, just a quick follow-up too, um, just going over some of the changes that were made as a result of all this. Um, I believe now the towns have 40, uh, 96 hours instead of 48 hours to report final results. Stuff like that makes me think that in November, you know, and this is something that's a point that's been made over and over again. The whole business of declaring a winner uh, on election night um, it might be something that we we live without for a while. Yeah, I mean, on the presidential in Connecticut, that won't be an issue. You know, most of the states, it's going to be crystal clear. They're either red or, or blue states, but there's going to be a, a few battleground states where, the question is, will we will there be uncertainty for for days or longer? And and in 2000, when it all came down to Florida, you had two candidates, Al Gore and George Bush, who behaved uh, in a way that showed great respect for the institution. There was no effort to undermine the ultimate result. Um, that does not seem to be the modus operandi of uh, the 45th president of the United States. So, so there'll be that. When it comes to local races, yeah, some of these 
some of these things could take a few days. Although, you know, if we get through this primary without uh, real drama in Bridgeport of it being stretched out, maybe that bodes well for November in Connecticut. <laughs> Um, we should quickly say that uh, among the things that were being voted yesterday were a few um, primaries for the Republican opportunity to run for Congress uh, in in at least two different districts, which is a little unusual. I mean, congressional Republican candidates are often in Connecticut, like the goat uh, that's staked out in, in Jurassic Park for the Tyrannosaurus to come eat. I mean, uh, our incumbents tend to win and win pretty easily. Uh, but, uh, but Brian, there was a, a little bit of a problem, which was that one of the Republican candidates uh, dropped out uh, after an arrest uh, and a pretty, uh, you know, upsetting charges anyway. I mean, innocent until proven guilty, but second degree strangulation, first degree unlawful restraint uh, were the charges filed against uh, Thomas Gilmer. And, yes, and, and he and he dropped out uh, saying he wants to take the opportunity to clear his name. Right. Uh, and and he said and, and clear it I will, but it sort of does raise the question like how, you know how long did the Republican leadership know about this? Did they try to do anything about it? Uh, it, it how well seem... are these people vetted? Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean it just it was just looking at J.R. Romano, the Republican state chairman, his, his remarks about this. I, I was unable to really you know get a sense. Uh, of whether they knew that this was a problem, that it was coming. They seem to have known about it in April or May because the other challenger brought it up. You just sort of wonder, you know, how they deal with these things. Well, you you also just sort of wonder if they're just, they're kind of happy to have somebody and they just don't want to ask too many questions because then they're not going to have anybody. Um, I mean, not to to keep bringing it back to Bridgeport, but that's often the case in Bridgeport. I mean, Mm -hmm. the Republicans who run in Bridgeport are sacrificial lambs. I mean, there is no doubt about it. The guy who won last night's Republican primary has run for mayor, city council, and already three times for state rep, and he's lost all those races. So now he's running a fourth time for state rep, which I hate to say it, but given the history, given um, Democrat dominance, he's likely to lose. There's a long history in Connecticut of Republicans having bitter primaries to win nominations for races that they have no chance of winning in November. There are, there are quite frequently congressional primaries on the Republican side, even though the Republicans have not won a congressional seat since 2006. Um, that's it, For whatever reason, it seems to be in their DNA. Uh, when it comes to the second district, uh, Justin Anderson, the challenger in the second district who had he says he had video and photographs of uh, that showed uh, injuries to mr gilmer's i guess former girlfriend um i talked to anderson yesterday he said he was given this material by mr gilmer's former girlfriend but she did not want it um i guess given to the police initially so you know, Jay Romano says that when Anderson first mentioned that he had this material, that he did two things. He urged Mr. Anderson to go to the police, and he also approached Mr. Gilmer and said, this is out there. Um, you should think about what you want to do. Um, there is no real vetting when it comes to these things. These are individual contests. People get in. They do what they're going to do. Um 
and you know the days of the party being able to shape this and get people to back away you know those days died out with uh, john bailey in the mid-70s so it looks would that would that be different if they had a chance (laughs) i think that aside i i'm wondering uh, right i think you know the party not defining the party not taking the time to vet their candidates is actually what um, it takes the frame of the party away from it. Like the narrative of the party is running away from it in all sorts of ways. And it's because you're putting candidates up that, you know, on primary day ha- aren't even available because they're being arraigned, right? I, I think that if there are, there's an opportunity and this goes for both parties. There is an opportunity to do, to really take the narrative of your uh, party and say, well, this is the sort of candidate that we want to put up. Otherwise, there is a, you know, tacit endorsement of the behavior that Gilmer um, is accused of at this point. I think that without a clear vetting uh, process, what we get is, you know, uh, criminals <laughs> in in uh, office. But then the question then becomes, I don't know if that's a big issue in Bridgeport. <laughs> well, uh, the, them's fighting words in Bridgeport, but I, I just quickly say there's, there's. I mean, I think as Brian was suggesting, there's a kind of benign neglect that goes on with these congressional races. I think it was last cycle the second district candidate just sort of stopped running at a certain point because he just thought nobody cared, and the Republican State Central Committee were paying no attention to him whatsoever. I think it is more benign neglect. But Mercy, while you have the floor here, I mean, another interesting thing that happened within the last forty-eight hours or so is, and I think it's the second case of it now, uh, an incumbent who had secured a General Assembly nomination, um, Jesse McLaughlin, just kind of dropped out. And it seemed to have something to do with the police accountability bill. Yeah. And so I talked to Jesse on uh, the day the he cast his vote for the police accountability bill. And when I say um, he, you know, he had a gravity about him, you know, his uh, his the, the weight that you could hear in his voice was just sort of palpable. Um, and I think the rest of that morning, right, this, this vote, the votes, the important votes were cast at 4 a.m. And the rest of that morning was really difficult for him. It's even just proven by, you know, the attacks that he got on his Facebook post detailing exactly the reason he voted in the way he did. Um, and so yeah, we received uh, his his an email must have been yesterday morning saying that he was pulling his um, candidacy. And there are pieces of this that you know the conversation around what allyship means um, is, is an obvious one. I wrote about that the week after you know the week the bill was passed. I just as a candidate who had already secured his party endorsement, I think that the insecurity that came crashing down on him after the police accountability bill is a scary one indeed because the the opponents of police accountability one are scary opponents, right? And they mobilize and oftentimes they mobilize far more than I think the proponents of police accountability can do. Um, right. It's it's sad to see him go from, from uh, you know, pull his candidacy, but I also completely understand. All right. We're going to grab a break here. We're going to be back with more of this terrific panel. And we are going to talk about what happened after the storm after this.
We're back. This is The Wheelhouse. I'm Colin McEnroe sitting in for Lucy, who's uh, having a few days off here. Brian Lockhart is on our panel today. He covers Bridgeport politics and policy at Hearst, Connecticut. Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief at the Connecticut Mirror. Mercy Quay, columnist for Hearst, Connecticut and founding principal consultant at the Narrative Project. And I will say uh, now that Susan Bigelow has become director of the National Institute for the Humanities or whatever she's doing right now, uh, Mercy is also the only uh, panelist who appears both on the wheelhouse and the nose on the Colin McEnroe show. So uh, I don't know. I don't know what that's worth, but it's something, you know. Um, so we are going to talk a little bit uh, about uh, the the storm and the utility companies during the storm. Before we do that, I have to sort of say something. Uh, uh, I'll probably have to say more than once in, in the ensuing months, uh, this sort of both personal and professional. I'm going to sort of try to be neutral and, and just let the panelists talk here. I have a really close friendship with Greg Butler, who's one of the chief executives for uh, Eversource here in Connecticut. Uh, and it would really it would tincture... Uh, my perception uh, of all of this stuff and make me uh, not an entirely trustworthy commentator. So I'm just telling you, I have a conflict of interest and I'm going to try not to say much of anything uh, other than to kick it around to these panelists. Paz, I'm going to start with you because you wrote a pretty comprehensive story uh, about all this. It, it just has been a very, very weird time for Eversource. A whole series of things came together in a way that certainly didn't burnish their image. But uh, you tell us the story. So Eversource, uh, at least in the view of their chief executive officer, Jim Judge, was coming off its best year ever. They actually had a pretty good winning streak as far as avoiding uh, significant blackouts. And they were making boatloads of money, and Mr. Judge was rewarded uh, for that performance with a $3 million bonus, uh, which brought his total compensation for 2019 to $19.8 million. Um, So that set the stage for what happened a week ago Tuesday, you know, massive outage, um, public utilities, regulatory authority, uh, the chair and the, and the state commissioner who handles energy issues, Katie Dykes, uh, quickly went after Eversource for underestimating the storm. Um, there's a, uh, there's a, a matrix uh, that the utilities are supposed to use. They, they rate the coming storms and they prepare accordingly. They, they you know, arrange for out-of-state crews to be standing by, that kind of thing. And United Illuminating, a smaller utility, which mainly has the, some coastal communities, including uh, Bridgeport and New Haven, they viewed it as a more dangerous storm. They had more people ready. Um, Eversource uh, downgraded it a bit, and um, they, were, they were roundly criticized for that. Uh, and then on top of that, they seem to uh, totally uh, mishandle the issue of communication and communicate and coordination with municipalities. Um, you know, I think people can have a reasonable debate about what they should have seen coming, but there seems to be no debate that these utilities, um, for whatever reason, for the second time in eight years, because we went through this in 2011, um, when the state reviewed their performance uh, on two storms, uh, that they just failed again. Um, and then you had the political question of you know the governor going to Eversource headquarters, having a private personal briefing 
by company officials, including the CEO, Jim Judge, that the governor then comes out to the, the lawn of Eversource to meet with us, and Jim Judge does not join him. Mm-hmm. And he, he dispatched a lieutenant who's in charge of you know regional electric operations. So it was reasonable to have that gentleman out on the lawn. But I think uh, there was a, a pretty widespread consensus. The judge made a bad decision and not standing out there with the governor and answering questions. Right. And the governor, in, in turn, discovered his own inner Dan Malloy, uh, I think, on this. And there's certainly a lot of politicians saying that there's going to be uh, some big remedies here. But so, Brian Lockhart, you, uh, I discovered just uh, doing a little bit of research, you covered the so-called two-storm panel. Wasn't That's what they called themselves, the two-storm panel. The storms were Irene and Snowmageddon or whatever you want to call the, the, the October nor'easter. Um, and so I went and looked at that report and it's one of those weird things. I think if you look at that report, you think, well, presumably everything's fixed now. We'll never have any problems again. So what's the, do you have a sense of what's the disconnect between uh, everything that was said back in 2011 and 2012 and where we are now? Well, that I think that is going to be the big question. There were a host of recommendations that came out of that report. Additional tree trimming, which I I think we're all aware of we saw it happening that happened a lot of trees have been taken down between then and now um but there were suggestions about moving vulnerable power lines for critical infrastructure underground if you remember that was a big debate back then um because for some people the the quick fix so to speak was well let's just bury it all and then it won't get blown down then you won't have a tree fall on it problem is it's not necessarily cost effective and in connecticut where we love our um, rural outdoors, you don't necessarily want a bunch of power line, you know, a bunch of ground being torn up to bury the power lines. Um, but communication, as you guys mentioned earlier, was also a big piece of that. There were supposed to be liaisons with all of the municipalities. There was supposed to be more communication between the cities, the towns, the state, and the utilities. And that just doesn't have, seem to have happened. And even though Eversource really is the one that's been dumped on for the last week, there was a lot of criticism of United Illuminating as well um, from folks down in our neck of the woods, including Mayor Ganim. So it seems like there were some issues with communications on UI's side. Um, you know, one of the things I'm interested in coming out of this is that back in, so the reforms that took place back in 2012 related to the 2011 storms, technically the legislature um, passed a bill that would levy fines um, for excessive power losses beyond 48 hours. And at the time, it was 2.5% of a utility's yearly revenues. So if customers were in the dark for over 48 hours, those utilities could face a fine. That was one issue. The other was Pura at the time, and I don't have an answer for you on this right now, but they were supposed to issue a report about whether utilities could also be held liable for spoiled food and spoiled medicine. Um, so those are the two things I'm particularly interested in coming out of this is, are we going to see fines leveled? I think um, U.S. Senator Blumenthal has already called for that. And then also, is there something out there that would allow customers to be made whole for the spoiled food and medicine they lost, um, folks who are without power during a heat wave for several days? 
I think you'll be hearing a lot of uh, from Attorney General Tong about that particular question. Norm Needleman, the relevant Senate uh, committee chairman, yeah. also has been uh, pretty loud. Before we go to mercy on this, I do. I would be remiss if I did not, particularly with Brian on the show today, share with the listeners the reverse nine one one call. Is that still what we call those things? The reverse nine one one call uh, by Mayor Joe Gannam of Bridgeport. Here's what that sounded like. Please join me in calling the UI company and telling them. Turn the power in Bridgeport on now. We can't wait any longer, and we won't. We demand action, and the residents of this city deserve it. All right. Not usually what not reverse 911 calls are used for, but whatever. Um, so, yeah, Mercy, I don't, what is your take on all this? I mean, obviously, uh, there's a tremendous appetite for change, pr- tremendous ap- appetite for not having this happen again in a time when climate change is probably sending a lot more big storms our way. Yeah, so I I don't even know where to begin. I think um, Gannon doesn't know he's not campaigning anymore because that to me sounds like, you know, the the sort of, you know, text campaign or or phone calls that you make to your base during a campaign um, or when you are are pushing for a particular legislation to to get passed when you as as a candidate, right? Or when organizers are on the ground and like call you, call your state legislator now and tell them we want um, a vote yes on road three whatever the thing is and I don't think he realizes he's not campaigning anymore and that's incredibly funny to me but the angle that I find particularly interesting is you know um, when uh, Judge didn't when uh, the the Eversource CEO uh, Jim Judge didn't join Ned Lamont on the lawn you know I think there is an opportunity here. Eversource's public relations with its customers over the last, I'll say, you know, three months has been kind of sorted, particularly with, you know, the conversation around potential uh, price hikes. So there was an opportunity here to turn this around in a, you know, no crisis wasted kind of way. I think coming from the, the, the camp of public relations, there was an opportunity to say, um, you know, we, we, we care about, we care about our customers and we were not adequately prepared and in order um to ensure that you know damages aren't um incurred to any further extent we're doing x y and z and clearly articulate that so people aren't i mean no pun intended here left in the dark in more ways than one i guess pun intended so him sort of running off the the lawn i i think that um uh paz you're right there was a better spokesperson on this um the the emergency communications person with eversource i don't remember his name at the moment there was a better spokesperson on it but as the head of the company who just got a 16 million dollar you know whose whose income jet was boosted to 16 million dollars it sort of feels to me that you owe your customers some face time Right. They have announced that they are hiring Billy Fauci, who's Anthony Fauci's brother, uh, to handle this stuff in the future. It's the same kind of, you know, nice, folksy, common, reassuring touch. Um, all right. We're going to grab a quick break here. We're going to come back. We have to talk a little bit about the freedom of information law. It is a law, by the way. <laughs> Apparently not everybody knows that. And we'll also have some airing of grievances and feats of strength from our terrific panel. So stay with us.
All right. Well, one of the treasures of Connecticut, dating back to the work of uh, former Governor Ella Grasso, is our freedom of information law. Actually, before I say all of that, I should say thanks to uh, Kat Pastor. She's the person in the studio making all this hum and playing all these clips and uh, making everything sound great and also making it possible for the rest of us to function remotely. Also, thanks to Matt Dwyer. He is the producer par excellence uh, of The Wheelhouse. And Lucy, I believe, will be back next week. You won't have to put up with me in the host seat. Uh, But uh, thanks for listening today. So yes, the freedom of information law, it's a wonderful thing. But you know, Brian, um, there's a sort of a way in which when we file freedom of information requests, we in the press or the citizenry, anybody can use this law, you're sort of, it's a little bit like a poker game. You kind of don't know what the face down cards are, nor do you 100% have any way of knowing whether they've given you everything that they're supposed to give. You you kind of have to hope that they're going to follow the law. Uh, and John Lender, um, uh, in, in a piece that ran in the Hartford Current uh, over the weekend, sort of documented the fact that sometimes they tell you, well, you know what, we really haven't located any records that are, that are responsive to your request. Uh, and, and then you find out later that they did have stuff. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. And you're right. It is a game. I mean, we play this. I play this with different municipalities, with the state. We play this with Bridgeport all the time. Um, the law, we're grateful for the law. It's a it's a useful tool. Um, but it is a game. I mean, you you ask for something and you hope, you know, you, you put out a net for emails, you put out a net, a net for documents. And as a reporter, I do always have that concern in the back of my mind that the really damning thing that I'm looking for is just going to kind of mysteriously disappear and I'm not going to get it. Um, And there's always games with dragging out FOI requests. Um, You know, I I will note that I think this has become a little more challenging during COVID um, because I do find, at least in Bridgeport, that they have sort of used the pandemic as an excuse and, and in some cases, understandably, I don't, I don't want to be too condemning, but I mean, they, they, they have used it as an excuse to drag the process out even more. Um, you know, oh, people are working from home. We don't have easy access to documents. Um, you got to give us a few more weeks to get you this information. So FOI is a very useful tool. But as John and his column showed, and as I think all of us here have probably experienced, it is not the be all end all when it comes to getting information, unfortunately. And Mercy, one, to me, one of the surprises, I, I wouldn't have guessed this, and I don't quite understand it, but as Lender lays out pretty well in the column, there's also just some kind of institutional, almost philosophical opposition to freedom of information uh, in the Lamont administration. I mean, it's now come up time after time, often in connection with these public-private partnerships, but it, it's much more of a battle than it should be. And, and Lamont seems to see this um, as a nuisance more than a necessary form of sunshine. Yeah, and I think, again, if we were going to lean um, on the public relations piece of this and just, you know, how are you working with the folks who are looking to you to lead? There's just a, a number of missed opportunities. It's just such a simple and easy thing to be able to provide folks uh, and also the law, right? That, that the A in FOIA is ACT. It is the law you have to comply. And I mean, reporters will tell you left and right that it's it, you're making the story for me. Well, not the story that I want, but you're making the story for me if you just deny my request or reject it or 
you know, fulfill it in a way that is 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 subversive to the to the to the essence of the law. Um, and it, it, it uh, my recommendation, my advice to the Lamont administration, but also you know on the municipality level, just do it. Just I mean, it's easier to do it than it is to avoid it in any other way. And you just want to be able to, in and always avoid that line in the story that's that makes it appear as though you were being again subversive. So, is it, is it something in Lamont's wiring though, or is it just something in in how politicians act, where they feel like I'm doing this for the greater good, and you don't need to know everything I'm doing as long as as long as there's a positive outcome. I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are. I think you're right. I don't know that 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 is specific to Lamont. I think that that there is a level of you know once you graduate to right from you know city council or board of alders and now you're the mayor right at almost at every level a FOIA request is scary to a public official and it's sort of like well why are they fishing in this way well, well because, Paz, you can, I, I, because you're a public official Paz, i would sort of say i mean the the paradox of this is and so Paz and i are old grizzled uh, reporters who remember earlier times this is the worst time to try to be a FOIA scoff law because the because of electronic records, because of email, because of everything. You don't even know if you're a public official who else has the thing that the reporter or citizen is going looking for. Yeah, and you know, you touch on something that's important about the change. You know, when you and I began our careers, when we would seek public documents almost always, they were, these were formal documents. These were memos. These were re reports. And the advent of email changed that. And this was a painful thing for public officials because people would think of email as really a conversation. And there was an informality and people will put things in an email that they would never put in a memo that they wanted to put on file. And that's been one of, I think, the sources of, of conflict. It's, it's, it's well established in law that these are public documents, uh, as are text messages that are uh, sent on government-issued phones. But I think that's where a lot of the conflict comes in. And there's also a great informality about how you make the FOI request. I mean, I... I made an FOI request during the governor's briefing the other day when he talked about the first fines being issued for violation of the COVID travel advisories. I emailed the governor's staff and I emailed the, the Department of Public Health, um, got a, a response from the Department of Public Health that this is considered a formal FOI request and that they would get back to me, God knows when. Mm. Um, but. So, you know, this, there has been this evolution. And in the case of, of Governor Lamont, um, you know, he does come from the private sector. I think he's had a, a struggle with the idea of, of even casual consultations, depending how they are done. Mm -hmm. They are a matter of public record. All right. You know, we're going to have to stop there. We've only got, a, we got less than three minutes left, but I would like to hear a feat of strength or an airing of a grievance be uh, somewhat concise. Mercy, why don't you get us going here? Yeah, I'm going to, the agreements I'm going to choose is uh, in New Haven, this uh, new fine for um, ATVs and, and dirt bikes. You know, most of the time the, the people on the ATVs and dirt bikes are, are kids, they're teenagers, and the fine 
is $2,000, right? Up to $2,000 for these kids, which I think in a lot of ways ends up further criminalizing kids for kid-like behavior in, a, in an inner city. Now I think that there's a way that we can handle it, but a fine of up to $2,000 for kids doing kid-like things is, is is a bad move in my opinion. All right, two minutes left. Yeah, $2,000 fine for FOI, uh, scoff laws, not for kids uh, on bikes. That, that's uh, all, right. <laughs> all right, uh, Brian, have you got something for us? Sure, um, I'll just throw it out here because we're talking about power. So a lot of the municipalities, a lot of the mayors and um, town managers are complaining about the impact on vulnerable folks. So for example, elderly housing or low income housing, um, where folks are stuck in a heat wave, maybe they're in high rises, the elevators aren't working. And as much as the utilities are to blame, I've got to wonder if maybe there's some blame to go around to the building managers and the building owners. And should they be compelled to be more prepared for these types of mass events, to have better generators, to have um, more wide-ranging backup systems, so the seniors who are living there aren't stuck in un-air un conditioned rooms with without elevators. Maybe that's, a, that's another solution people need to look at. As it's a great point, Paz. Uh, I've screwed up the clock. You've only got about thirty seconds. What have you got for us? In an air-conditioned kitchen uh, with a coffee maker, I yield all rights to grieve to the one thousand five hundred sixty-nine customers of EverSource who are still without power. All right. Well, uh, you brought a lot of power uh, to the conversation today. Mark Pasniokas, Mercy Quay, and Brian Lockhart, thanks so much for doing that. Uh, thanks to all of you who listened. My grievance was going to be the fact that Georgia is going to elect a QAnon supporter to Congress, but I don't have time to talk about that right now. We'll be back with another Wheelhouse next week. 